gentlemen welcome to another episode of music the lifeblood i am your very humble host dustin we've got an extra ultra mega special edition of music the lifeblood for you why because pete damien marshall that's why pete was the guitarist of the post misfits glenn danzig helmed sam hayne from 1984 till 1986 later pete also went on to play with the legend himself iggy pop Pete's done a lot of badass shit. He's definitely one of those guys that you want to talk to when it comes to the industry insider kind of stuff. I had the pleasure to talk at length with Pete about his time in Samhain, his love for the Stooges, his time playing with Iggy Pop, and on and on and on. I want you guys to hear this conversation because Pete has got some seriously badass stories. So stick around for it. But before we get into that, I want to remind everyone that Music the Lifeblood is available on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr. We've also got the Music the Lifeblood YouTube channel where you can watch the show that I host, Vinyl Thursday, where we talk about new releases, vinyl unpackaging, opening videos, and we do some interviews from time to time. All kinds of great stuff happening on Vinyl Thursday and we have Vinyl Thursday's sister show, Conversations from the Pit co-hosted by myself and Music the Lifeblood's own third man in the field, Mr. John Carter. So come and find us on all those outlets or whatever the hell you want to call it. We like hearing from you guys to reach out to us. That's awesome. Now, that's out of the way. Let's get to this interview with Mr. Pete Damien Marshall. Pete, how are you? Oh, I'll live. (laughs) okay all right pete well thanks for being on the show okay so pete you were born in 63 um which makes you uh, a child of the 70s um so you're a guitar player growing up Mm -hmm. um and i've had you mentioned to me uh previously in our correspondence you mentioned ron ashton steve jones you know guitar players like that so from a from an influence uh, and just kind of what caught your attention about playing guitar, who were the guys that were a big deal for you? Um, the very first one, when I was about six, they ran, um, I, it must have been August, like 69 or 70, but they ran Gimme Shelter on Channel 13. Oh, nice. Okay, the Rolling Stones for documentary? Some, for some reason, yeah. Okay. And I saw Keith Richards with that at uh, Clear Dan Armstrong. Nice. And that's at six, and I was like, I'm doing that. <laughs> nice, sweet. So are you, are you, now I know you've played with Iggy Pop in the past, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. which probably, my guess is that you're probably a Stooges fan, right? Oh, hell yeah. So what about, you know, Ron Ashton, or even like, you know, some of the, the Motor City stuff, like uh, uh, Wayne Kramer from the MC5, you know, are those guys on your radar at that point? Oh yeah, always were. That was uh, that was that was my main starting point. You know, there was always punk rock, but then I'd go back to the the Detroit stuff. Nice. Why why the why the Midwestern stuff? Because you're an East Coast guy, right? Mm-hmm. What's what grabbed you about? Um, what grabbed you? 
uh, just a you know high energy Detroit rock kind of thing. You know, it's it had the energy of you know what I was looking for. Okay, nice. So, is it safe to say that raw power is one of the things that kind of uh, you know that that spiked your eyebrows that made you kind of do a double take? Yeah, uh, it took me a while to find it though because I was like. Um, by the time I was nine or ten, I was already reading Cream. Okay, so, nice. Uh, okay, which is, which is a, a Michigan-based was a Michigan-based uh, rock magazine, which I thought was the best one. Had the best writers. Okay. And uh, the first one I got was the one the cover was had Iggy on the cover with a hammer breaking records. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I still have that somewhere. But, I mean, everything they wrote about was like, you know, all the record reviews are like, not as good as Raw Power. Nope, still not as good as Raw Power. <laughs> okay, nice. I remember um, so, I've, I've seen a, a, um, a TV clip of Iggy and Bowie on a TV show together um, being interviewed. And Iggy had mentioned, well, I think we helped, um, you know, everybody kind of forget or destroy the 60s. Being, yeah. being a young person at that time, what was kind of... What was the feeling in the air? You know, you someone that's already has this interest in playing music for a living, you know, doing this kind of stuff. Being a young person, what what was the feeling? You know, was it electric? Was it just kind of this? You know, this is coming. Nothing can stop it. How did it feel being a young person in that environment? Mm, well, uh, I was. I grew up in Rutherford, New Jersey, which is about five miles from New York City, and it could not be more backwards and boring whereas you know you go to like uh like a, a more working class i a town like uh Hodai, for instance and okay. uh and people were into punk rock and stuff there and, and, and when i was growing up it was just like it, it was it could not have been more reviled everybody was into the dead and leonard skinnered the doors Okay, so you were kind of, at least in the environment, you were in somewhat of an odd man out, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, w I would assume that's kind of the one of the things that a lot of people are drawn to punk rock, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because they yeah. feel kind of marginalized, you know, in a way. Yeah. What, you know, when you get introduced to the punk rock music scene, what, what was your what was your in? What, what was the doorway you went through to, to, to get involved? completing the equation of, you know, the, the Stooges and the Ramones and then just seeing, finally seeing the Sex Pistols and seeing Steve Jones. And, yeah, I'm going to do that. Okay, nice. Did you see him on the, the American tour? Oh, no. <laughs> they, they, they came into JFK and um, immediately went down south. Okay. But, um, no, I said, you know, there was... TV clips of him and just, you know, just the way he held the guitar and just what I heard. Like, yep, I'm going to do that. So did you spend, were you, were you in bands? Because you joined Sam Hain relatively young, right? Eh, not that young. I think I was like 21. 21? Okay. Were you playing in bands yeah, previous yeah. to that? You know, what were you, what were you doing? Uh, in high school, nobody would play with me. <laughs> okay. Because, nice. uh, um, my tastes were too out there um, for them. So I really didn't... I, I played with um, guys I grew up with in 
up in Highland Lakes in Vernon, New Jersey, in the summer. Okay. We had a we had a four piece band called Humpty Keg. <laughs> nice. Okay. Nice. And you can you can see all that timeline on that that Misfits Bible thing that Mark Kennedy had. Oh sure. Okay. Um. Uh. So we were, and yeah, talk a you know talk about being. I mean, that was like seventy nine. 79 or 80. Okay. And we made, we, we played at, at this guy, these guys battle of the bands in a high school in Vernon and they called the cops on us. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was kind of the reaction I wanted, but not really. Right. Okay. So you make, um, you know, you, you hit your twenties. Um, it's 83, mm-hmm. 84, how do you get introduced to 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 Glenn, uh, Steve, and um, Erie? You know, how does that happen? Well, uh, let's see. I worked in a record store, and there was there was people coming in Rutherford. There was people coming in and out of there. I met the I met actually met the Feelies, uh, who were like kind of a bringing Hoboken pop band. And uh, from there, I went to, oh, I met Steve at Burden Community College, uh, where we were in the same graphic arts class. Then, uh, so, I had, been, I had already been hanging out on the, you know, like the New York hardcore scene. Okay. Going to A7 every week. And uh, one day when I was in the cafeteria at school, it was, little guy with a mohawk came in on a cane and it was Bobby Stunt who was the uh, lead singer of a band called the Horlords. Okay. Which is like a, a Bobby Steele had been in that band and Joey Image who I played with later from the Misfits. So he was from Edgewater and he had just gotten out of county jail oh, nice. and was in my psychology class. <laughs> okay. So, he, you know, he was like he saw my jacket with the, you know, the uh, the Crimson Ghost on it, and he was like, oh, you like the Misfits? I'm like, yeah. So, uh, you want to come see my band? I, I'm getting them together again. So I went to, uh, went to some rehearsal studio where they have a party, and uh, saw the band, the that version of the Horror Lords, which was terrible, and he kicked <laughs> the guitar player out on stage. <laughs> okay. And then the next day, he was like, you want to play guitar? <laughs> nice. Okay. Hell yeah. So that was that was my in there. Previous to that, I had um, played for a very short time with, uh, there's, there's getting to be more interesting than now, there's a Jersey band called Genocide. Okay, cool. Tell you how foul and out there they were. They influenced Gigi Allen. Okay. So Bobby Bobby Ed, the singer of that band, was just like I ended up playing in bands with all these short, sawed off wackos. <laughs> nice. It's, yeah. It's so, great. Uh, after yeah, after that, um I wasn't I was too punk for genocide. They were going in a more metal direction, but I still to this day I think they were one of the best things I've ever seen. And uh there there is a recurring 
interested in them, and there's a company in Germany that's putting out their T-shirts again. Nice. Okay. So, uh, yes, you get a chance to look into that. I will. Everybody. Yeah. Cool. Um, so then, let's see, the Horror Lords, I went through that, and then um, after one Stevie's Sunday matinee, Bobby decides, oh, I had packed a band with my friends at that point. Because everybody else was like an alcoholic or a junkie or whatever. Okay. And that's what the Horror Lords was. It was like <laughs> one straight guy and three junkies. <laughs> and uh, so, it, you know, it's, and Bobby had decided to go in more of a Nazi skinhead direction. He's like, we're not called the Horror Lords anymore. We're called Nazi youth. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I quit. I, he went back to jail um, and then got out again. And um, then I played with Morning Noise. Okay, with Steve, right? With Steve, yeah. Okay. Steve was like, well, we, we need another guitar player. So, so I played with them. And we made a... They were trying to make a record, uh, make an album. And that was on 8-track half-inch. So I... I think we went back and erased all of Tommy Kropowski's tracks because he was out of the band at that point. Okay. And um, I think all that stuff ended up on the uh, Death Trip Delivery record that finally came out in, what, the 90s? Maybe early 2000s? Okay. Then, um, so Steve was starting to work with Glenn because he had a, like a, a four-track cassette set up in his bedroom. And um, so Glenn would come over and have these ideas, and then eventually it was Steve Glenn and Erie, and um, you know they were just they were forming stuff. So I was we were still doing Morning Noise, and so I was around, and then at the very the, the first Sam Hain show, uh, you know Lyle Presler showed up, sure. and, you know re- refused to be scary or whatever he thought it was. And, um, they didn't, he needed, um, he actually used my, uh, Fender Pro Reverb. Yeah, I read, I read that on the Bible, yeah. Yeah, and, um, so he had, so they didn't get any, uh, rental gear for the show, which was what Lyle was hoping for, so he played through that, it was kind of a non-event. And then, uh, you know, we went back to D.C., and that was it. And, you know, Glenn's like, we need a guitar player. Uh, so Steve's like, well, let's try Pete out. Okay, nice. So, yeah, so I, and Glenn really didn't like auditioning people. So it's pretty much the same with Iggy. They just, they had no time for stuff like that. It was like, can you do it? Good, you're in. And, you know, put this on. Um, so of course I dyed my hair black and, uh, it was, you know, about three months of, uh, rehearsals in the basement before we did anything. So what were those, uh, you know, that, that first rehearsal where you come in, you guys are all in the basement, one, two, three, go, you know, what, what was it like? Uh, pretty scary. Scary. Because, yes, because Glenn didn't sing. He just sat there and watched us. 
so you had to know the arrangements already, which I had worked on with Steve. But still, I mean, it was, it was terrifying. I mean, that was the most famous person I had ever met up until then. Obviously, so. he kind of, he he came along with a cloud of being, you know, in the misfits at that time. You know, right. yeah. Inter- interacting with him kind of on that level, you know, obviously Glenn's a little bit older than the rest of you guys at the time. Right. Um, you know, what's, is he just a real, is he just a relentless taskmaster? You know what I mean? Was he just like, was it a big brother kind of vibe? You know, what, what was it, it like? on the day. Okay. It really depended on the day and like how his day had been going. And because sometimes, you know, you know we'd go over to his house and, hang out or just show up and be like, hey, come on in. <laughs> you know, here's this, here's that. Hey, look what I found. A, you know, box of cough cool 45s under the bed. <laughs> you want one? <laughs> nice, okay. Which actually happened. <laughs> okay, cool. So I still have that upstairs. So, but, um, so, but I mean, and some days he was, you know, really, you couldn't do anything to please him. Like I said, it varied. So on his day and mood. I've I've heard, you know, I've I've, you know, doing research for the, you know, to, to talk to you. Um, I listened to a lot of things London had to say about his time in the band that uh, rehearsals specifically, um, the band would just go bonkers at rehearsals. And he said that was the first band that he'd been in that at they went they treated a rehearsal like they would a live show. Mm hmm. Why? It was, it was, you, you know what I mean. What? Where? Where did that come from? Well, it's you know, an all-or-nothing thing, and that's you know that's the way I've always played music. You're, you know, it's you're either on or you know you're not doing it, and and it's going to be really loud. Does it add to and, you know? Does it? I I think of a band in a live setting almost like a tank. You know the. The, the more well-played and well-versed in the songs, the thicker the armor is on the tank. You know, uh, yeah. you guys as a unit, you know, you know, Erie and Steve as, as a rhythm section, you and Glenn as a harmony and melody section, you know, do you felt like you guys could, could read each other what the, what the other person was going to do at that point? Was it that fluid of, an, of a band? No, not really. Because um, Erie had only been playing bass for about, what, six months? Okay. So there was in the other, you know, other bands I was in, everybody was more experienced, and you know, you could always like playing with other other guys, like in New York hardcore guys, like you know, Murphy's Law, for instance, or somebody, the guys in the Stimulators. It's like, you know, everybody knew a certain like subset of songs that was like sort of represented where the music came from, like the Heartbreakers tunes or Motorhead tunes. And this was the first band I was in that they you had guys that were not capable of, of like jamming like that. Okay. Do you think um, it, do you think it limited things? Yeah, for me. Um, but I I mean, you know, I really had nothing to compare it to at that point, it, except other other stuff I had done. Okay. And it's uh, you know, it was. I mean, it was you know, it was great. And on the other hand, it was sometimes it was frustrating. Okay. 
so you guys, you 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 know, you're in the band. Init- uh, mm-hmm. The three of them put out Initium. You join the band after the fact. Um, you yep. guys go to start working on Unholy Passion. Yeah. You know what's what's the what's that first studio experience like? Um, I had already been in the studio. That studio with Real Platinum, where it was recorded, because we did all the morning noise stuff there. Okay. So those those sessions were, and I think Bob had Bob Aleka had just upgraded to two inch sixteen. No. I think he might have been 24 track by that time. Yeah, he was. And because Glenn filled up every track <laughs> with something. Um, so it's a, a weird sounding record because a, a, um, a lot of times we were left on our own. Where, you know, whereas like Steve or me would be engineering, you know, Bob would, it was his parents' house, so he'd go upstairs. And uh, just leave us until you know somebody had a question or whatever. Okay. So that's where I learned how to you know do recording. But I mean, they, those everybody always says like those those records sound really unique, and I can't. It's I don't know whether it's by design or it's just the way it happened. <laughs> so did you? I, re, were I you... remember taking taking the the masters to go. You know, get. You used to have to take for records. You used to have to take it to a mastering place, and they, you know, they do all the EQ and uh, and uh, through leveling amplifiers, and how so the needle would jump off the record. Sure. And then the and the sweater vested pipe smoking guy who must have been in his forties, and was like Glenn would show up. He's like, oh man, you you guys. Like, everything's so dark sounding. <laughs> you have to do a lot of work. <laughs> but the, the, those, the, um, the actual sessions for Unholy Passion were pretty intense. They were, that was, we, I think we had three or four days from 9 a.m. to noon. I remember I was, I was pretty on it. I remember feeling good about that, except like not really liking my, my tone. Which we didn't have any money, so you know, it, Glenn hated my guitar at the time. It was a a uh, Walnut SG. Okay. And he's a I don't like that. So um, I think I I might have used that that uh, Gene Simmons axe, which is a horrible sounding piece of crap. The Kramer. Yeah. Okay. And so it was an aluminum neck bolted to like a molded body. Maybe it wasn't molded. Maybe it was wood. But with a DeMarzio super distortion in it through my DOD overdrive, you know, 250 and the eighth grade and uh, that P was, maybe I used the PV Decade, which is a 10 watt amp, <laughs> or the, the Pro Reverb. Okay. Because they didn't have any amps. Well, they had a, they had a Yamaha single 15 bass amp at the studio which sat underneath the uh, Wurlitzer. So we used that. I remember just by uh, thinking by, you know, my performance was pretty good, but I just really didn't like the tone. And I think that's what, at that point, uh, it got a little too intense for Steve. Because he was really being driven hard. Because that's, you know, there's a lot of rhythmic uh, 
stuff on that record. It's really tribal, and you know, he, I think he was finding it difficult. You know, in doing research again, you know, I I came back to on a couple occasions that there was some hazing, you know, going on, you know, between you know ever the the four guys in the band at that time. Do you think? I mean, did that oh, yeah. did that contribute to uh, Steve leaving? You know, was or was he just? It was time to move on and do something else. No, that that's. I think it had something to do with it, but he. You know, it, it it just I guess it got a little you know a little too physical and intense for him, and that's I guess that's not the kind of guy he he was. Okay. Because I mean, this was like you know most guys would play football in high school or whatever. And this I mean, and I put the I I put the energy that somebody else would have put into that into being in the band, right? And playing. So that was that was my outlet. Okay. All right. So, Unholy Passion, you guys finished recording it. You put it out. Mm-hmm. Do do we hit the Seasons of Dead tour uh, before Steve leaves or after? I I don't remember. You don't remember? Okay. I, no. I'd have to look at something, but, uh, it, you know, it's... I mean, the, in, the individual tours weren't that different. Uh, it was just called something. And the... Uh, it would be couple of really great shows and then there'd be some you know not so great ones so okay so steve leaves london comes in um london is even younger than you and erie um you know how does how does the dynamic change at that point i never thought about it like that i just thought about it and like he he took the train up here and i think i think my father went and picked him up from uh, newark penn station (laughs) Nice. And brought him back to our house, and uh, and uh, he's like, "I'm a vegetarian." He's like, oh, I'll make you a salad. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So I heard uh, yeah, Lon- my- Lon- London had mentioned that you uh, uh, you had helped him get a car, right? Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> I, know- did, I I I, uh, I think it was a Volkswagen bus. I, it's it's fun. It's a funny thought because I can't imagine any of the guys in Sam Hain driving a Volkswagen bus. <laughs> uh, I had a bunch of them. <laughs> you always think of like uh, well, that was like the Munsters car, like the Dragula. That's what I think. Oh, yeah, that's what that's I see. Everybody wanted. <laughs> you know, everybody was like, "Where's your hearse?" I, like, I have a hearse. I can work on this thing, and it's cheap. Nice. Right on. <laughs> Did you guys take a step forward when London comes on? Was was there like any kind of a quantum leap? Because the difference between Initium and November Coming Fire and even Unholy Passion in between, November Coming Fire, to me, sounds like a much more realized idea. You know, songs are fleshed out, you know, a little more. Yeah. It, it feels more complete, so to speak. Yeah, but I, I don't think that had to do with anybody in the band That uh, besides Glenn writing the tunes. Okay. Um, I mean, it was just a different drummer. You know, some of the some of the stuff he he London just didn't get because um, he was you know he was young he was still you know he was a a kid playing with you know a bunch of guys that have been doing it already and try and constantly trying to play catch up. Right. And that's you know not that I'm saying that was bad. And I'm not saying he was bad or anything, but it was. It must have been really difficult for him. Sure. So those those November coming fire 
sessions. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys come, you know, you're on road trips, you know, off and on, you guys get done, you you decide, okay, we're cutting a new record. You know, the initially those, when Glenn comes to you guys and says, okay, these are the songs, you know, what were your first impression of those, that kind of second, third batch of songs? Pretty cool. You liked them? Oh, yeah. What about yeah, I just I wish the I wish the record had heavier sounding and that was the beginning of like me arguing with him about it. Heavy from a production standpoint? Just a, the yeah, just the sound of it. But uh, then again, it's I just remember arguing about like look, it's like everybody, you know, we we should be sounding more like Slayer. Okay. If you really want to cross over and and get you know and and actually make this a career, which eventually happens, because I think you know, think about how the first Danzig record sounds. Sure, yeah, there's, I, it's a big, huge difference for sure. Mm-hmm. What? So all the all the quirkiness is, and you know, the, all the oddities were gone at that point. You have you have a song like uh, "In My Grip" versus mm-hmm. a song like "To Walk the Night." Not complete opposite ends of the spectrum, but on that side of the spectrum, there's a little distance between the two. You, you know, you you as a player, you know, what'd you think? Do you do you you I, you said you well, we should be headed towards a little heavier of a direction. Did you you know? Did it but, feel like? Yeah, uh, but those, I mean, those are. Uh, Idea-wise, you know, they're still pretty heavy songs. Sure. I, and to walk the night, I still, I still use that chord form occasionally. And you know, it's, it's still, it's a great song. I would agree. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's, you know, to me, a great song is a great song is a great song, and I don't care who wrote it. It's, you know, but Glenn, he, he had, you know, some really good influences and will put a lot of thought into what he did. Right. So, uh, I, I, that Mother of Mercy was a great song too. I wish that one had been heavier. Now I've heard, I've heard James Hetfield say that's one of his, you know, that's one of his most favorite albums ever made, you know, uh, with, with the perspective of, you know, 30 years at this point, you know, do you do you feel like, you know, November Coming Fire, Unholy Passion, whatever? Do you feel like do they hold up? You know, in your eyes, as being a part of the band, do you still feel like, yeah, I'm really glad I played on those records. I'm really proud of that stuff. Yeah, I, I am. But um, I mean, unless you have the original vinyl versions, you're not going to hear me because I'm pretty sure Glenn went back and uh, recorded over everything I did. Yeah, I'm. You know, I was glad I was on it. I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad it happened. But when I go back and listen to it, it's just like, ugh, I, I don't like the way it sounds. Is it a produ- Even though I like the I like the material, it's a produ- it's a production issue, right? Right. So what what yeah. have you you know with with the hindsight of you know being a a pretty you know a seasoned you know industry kind kind of guy at that time, you know. You know, what do you think could have been did should have been done differently in that regard? Or if you could get your hands on those masters, what would you do with them now? I don't know what I'd do with them now because I don't even know where they are. 
<laughs> well, I don't, I hope Glenn has them because most of the two-inch stuff, I remember, was stuck in a closet in the studio. So it was always there, which I, I thought was a little weird. Um, because, you know, it's, it's yours. But the, the later on, when I was doing other stuff, I, I found that to be the, uh, with studios, that was like the status quo. Or you just, you left them after the there. Do you, th- um, do you think it's possible that someone has went over? You don't have has it recorded over them completely. I don't know. That's I mean the thirty year old tape. You know, it, actually we bought it used. Okay. That was used two inch tape because it was pre stretched and it was cheaper. Wow. We go into go into the city, go to Rogue Music, and buy it and then tape over somebody else's record. <laughs> Do you, uh, do you, have you, have, do you, have you had, you know, cause I don't know what has happened to Bob Alec, uh, Aleka. Um, you know, have you had any kind of interaction with him? It's like, is it something no. you know? No, I think the last time I saw him, I, I had brought this, uh, band of the late eighties. I played with, uh, Letch Patrol to that studio. Okay. And, or no, we did something else there. But that was it. And then he, um, about that time, he, uh, Christine Aguilera, and he put the demos out or sold them or something. Okay, so November Coming Fire is ready to go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's ready to go to press. You guys are going to put yep. it out. Um, my research tells me that the photo shoot was kind of like, um, a, you know, on top of this hill. It's a place where you knew about, you had went you know, maybe hung out or <laughs> kind of went up there to just gather your thoughts or whatever, you know, that photo shoot, because a lot of Sam Hain fans always talk about like those pictures, you know, when you think of Sam Hain, you think of those pictures from that photo shoot. Um, yeah. Was it Erie taking pictures? Cause Erie's, you know, he's got an eye for the camera. Um, it was his buddy actually. I think Mike Vianis, that okay. his name that, that came along and, uh, you know, of course, wanted to be a photographer because Erie was one. So uh, <laughs> nice. I think he actually, like, Glenn set everything up, and then he actually handled the shots. Okay. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, um, I lived up in Highland Lakes at that point where I spent every summer growing up. Mm. And uh, that was a, that was a spot on the edge of the mountain up by there. There was a reservoir gave all the water to this community before everybody had wells. So we'd walk around that and out to the edge of a mountain, and that was looking at uh, Vern down the hill. Okay. That was the A&P parking lot in the background. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, nice. <laughs> That's it. So you can't get there anymore. I mean, you can get there one certain way, but it's all, at this point, last time I, was, I looked at that up there, it was it's all pretty much built up and you'd be going through people's yards. Okay. Sprawl. Sprawl, right? Suburban yeah. suburban yeah, sprawl. That's, a, you know, that's where that's where we go for keg parties. <laughs> nice. Okay. How fitting Sam Hain takes take, does a photo shoot on top of it. So the the tour for November Coming Fire. Mm-hmm. What was it like? I, you know, I'd have to look at the dates again, but it just seems like maybe we went out for a month. 
and then came back, and then everything was like these short, you know, like one-off shows that we drive to after that. Jump, quick jumps out. Yeah, because we had that van. It was a converted meat delivery truck that Glenn <laughs> got somewhere. Um, it had a three-speed transmission, uninsulated. Uh, you know, it was just a, it was like a '77 Dodge with a big box on the back that we painted the interior black, and then I built a uh, I built a loft. Okay, and we put all the gear under the loft, taking a you know, taking a cue from, like, uh, the Necros van, the Larry 2. I was like, that's a great idea. And he's like, yeah, you put the gear under there, and then the rest of it's for partying. Nice. Okay, nice. I've seen, just, so, uh, I've seen, and I've seen pictures inside of that van, you know. Um, it's yeah. either, like, a picture of Glenn or Erie just kind of sitting in the back of it. You know, when you guys are cram- when you guys are cramped inside of that space, you know, for a long road trip, you know, what, what, what did the four of you guys, what did you guys do to occupy the time? You know, what, what kept you busy? I remember driving through this, this like, you know, driving across Texas or something or New Mexico. And, and we're in the middle of the desert. And I was like, man, man, those, those are big cactuses. And Steve's like, those are real. I thought they were like penguins, only in Chili Willy cartoons. Or <laughs> like, everybody started beating the crap out of them. How are you so stupid? So the di- the dynamic in the band because that's getting relatively close to the end, you know. At that point, mm-hmm. you know, did yeah. you know Rick Rubin comes along? You know, Rick Rubin starts getting involved with you know rehearsals and kind of you know talking to Glenn and things like that. You know what what was that like? You know what did you did you have any interaction with Rubin at that point? You know, I had about thirty seconds of interacting with him. It was that quick. Yeah, um, he came to this. There was uh, the last show that uh, we played. I think it was with MDC. It was a. It was like a. It wasn't CMJ back then. It was called New New Music Seminar. Okay, it was the show at the Ritz, and, right? Yeah. Okay. DOA. It was DOA, MDC, Celtic Frost, and us. That's a cool lineup. Yeah, it was, and um, I I had met the guys uh, from. Uh, Mark Nain from Celtic Frost was, uh, he was a huge fan. At that time, I was, uh, Tom, Tom Warrior and I were playing the same Iceman. The PS10? So I don't know whether he's the black one. Okay. Both on the, I think it was the IC200. Okay. We, it was the exact same guitar, and uh, Martin was like, I don't know what he was getting at, but he said, that night he said to me, like, you, you and Tom play the same, like, like rock, <laughs> like do you mean I I play like I'm I'm handling a rock or, or and I never got to ask him about that. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah, that was that was like that night was like a lifetime of activity. And, you know, things were things really started happening. So that's so the... we played and. Um, was this was, the, a, was this the night that you and Erie had bought the uh, the tuxes? No, no, that was that was back in that would have been April or May. Okay, all right. And that's I think uh, I think mine was actually my sister's. <laughs> I still didn't have any money, and the purple shirt that I wore was uh, came from my friend's grandfather. The custom made shirt 
from a place in London. I still have it. Nice. Um, yeah, that. Now we just we pulled up in the, no sound check or anything. We just pulled up with our guitars and uh, my friend Tom's jacked up blazer, and uh, which which had plywood for one of the rear windows because we'd driven it off the trail the night before. <laughs> Four wheeling out in the woods, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we did the things mud covered and you know scooch three fifty and two blasting cherry bombs. So it was no, it was a big black truck. So of course it looked you know we looked great getting out of that. Nice, okay. So that that um, la- that last show, you know, what are your feelings about it? You know, thirty years down the road. Hmm. Uh, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It was. Um, there was like guitars, there was like three Marshall stacks on each side of the stage. And when we got up there, the guy's like, what do you want? I said, hook them all together. <laughs> and I had never played that loud, which in hindsight was probably a dumb thing to do, but you know, what, 22? That's, that's, um, that's Iron Maiden proportions. Well, yeah, it's, you can't even do that. But anyway, we did it and you know, the sound was crappy and, uh, it was just mayhem. The uh, when I when I see footage from that show, you know, it's always interesting to watch Glenn perform. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. crouched down at the front of the stage a lot. You know, kind of, you know, up yeah. in the the barricade, the front rows faces. You know, things like that. You know, you there and Eerie, no barricade. Okay, yeah. Uh, you and Erie. You know, each of you guys are just kind of focused on the task at hand. To me, as a as a as a live unit, did you ever find yourself, you know, did you pause and look across the stage and go, you know, oh my god, you know, this is this is gnarly. We are monsters up here. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think you could tell it was going to go somewhere else, and that's that's really what we were waiting for. But we we saw it you know, when the, when Metallica started coming to shows, like. All right, we're getting signed, and you know it's all going to be crazy after this, so, which is what happened, but not to me. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, where what was it like? You know what I mean? Kind of in, I guess, in the fallout. You know, Glenn and Erie move on; they do Danzig. You know, what was it like for you? So depressing. It was, you know, it was like having all that taken away from you then, and then like have and being, you know, because they were still on the periphery and hanging around the same general area and I we knew some of the same people. Mm. But it was, you know, it was really depressing to be thrown out of a band at that point, right as the you know, poised to go on to bigger and better things. So how do you how do you move on? What do you do? Uh what did I do? Mm, I drank a lot, uh <laughs> I <was> depressed. <laughs> I was you know, I was angry. Um no, I I I wanted them to fail. After London got kicked out too, it, you know, he was—he felt the same way, and then eventually, I guess, went back to Baltimore. Okay. And I just—I you know, I floated through various and sundry projects, and uh, and I, I remember thinking too, it's like, okay, if I get to 24 and I'm on a, in a signed act, I'm just going to quit playing guitar, which never happens. And you know, occasionally people would like recognize you or want to talk to you or whatever but uh i i just from the late 80s into the mid 90s late 90s i just i didn't really talk about it but um 
I was, uh, I started out as a roadie for Iggy's band. Okay. One of the guitar players on a 95, December of 95, they played some, uh, like, uh, women's rights show in LA. I forget what it was at the Palladium. And they had just gotten Whitey cursed back. He had just gotten Whitey back on guitar and the other guitar player hated him and on the plane on the way home tried to pull, you know, pull a power play and say like, if you don't get rid of him, I'm quitting. And Diggy doesn't like to be backed into a corner like that. Sure. And uh, he just said, go ahead. And that was it. So he was gone and then he asked his manager, like, what do we do now? Art Collins, his manager, like, he plays guitar. Just use him. He's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, on my birthday, I uh, I went over there and jammed with him on some weird detune I made up. And he's like, can you help me out? I said absolutely. And I was in his band for eight years and made three records for him. Awesome. So what 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 yeah. were what were the records you were on, Pete? Uh, let's see, Avenue B, um, Beat 'Em Up, and Skull Ring. Okay, cool. That's what I thought they were. I knew you were on Beat 'Em Up. Yeah. So what's that? What's that experience like? You know what I mean? It's almost like, you know, if I were in your shoes, I would see that as you know, you kind of feel some vindication. You know what I mean? You grow up, oh yeah, listening to yeah. Motor City stuff. You know, was that like a victory is mine sort of thing? Yeah, pretty much because it paid really well too. Nice. Okay. <laughs> it paid. It paid well, and you know, I, it was a surreal. It was surreal. You know, it's like, this is a guy I used to go see and, like, idolize since I was a little kid. And, um, you know, and now he's calling calling my house. So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was fun. You got paid well. You know, you weren't sitting in a van in a parking lot waiting to play some crappy club the day after tomorrow. We've done, we spent five days in a van in Hollywood in, uh, right around the, the first Sam Hain tour because Glenn forgot his phone book. So it's sitting in, you know, it's going to Hollywood book and poster every day spending hours. I couldn't do that now. You had a lot more hope and saw things differently back then. But right. I, I sure. mean, the Iggy's band was a five-star hotel. It was great. Great For, paycheck. A guy, that, a guy that's never told you you're too loud. Good gear. Free gear. Uh, you know, free guitars. What, you know, how, what could be better? It's a completely different world. Yeah. I was actually... I like to describe myself back then as the world's worst professional musician. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've watched that that live DVD you guys did, and mm-hmm. that band, you know, the four of you guys, you know, back in Iggy Up, it it's tight. It's really, really tight. It's impressive. Yeah, yeah. My my brother in law, who's who is is actually from Detroit. Um, uh, he uh, he was like, yeah, you you know, he had better bands, but you guys had all the attitude, and noise, and very Michigan style. Right. So the this the the first the first Sam Hain reunion happens in like roughly 1999. Where were you? Uh, working and uh, doing you know doing Iggy stuff. And okay. That's when Avenue B came out, and of course we had a big tour lined up, and and uh, I had heard Steve had called me, and you know I said Glenn's gonna gonna want to do this Sam Hain reunion, and um, I was like well. I got to find out the dates, as it was, it was, you know, concurrent with what I was doing. So I call his, his office and they never call me back. And then finally he calls me back at work one day and he's like, well, are you ready to do this? I'm like, I'm not doing it. He's like, I got an Iggy tour. And then he freaked out and uh, said, you're screwing me. Like, well, you didn't call me back and I wasn't able to arrange anything. And as it, as it went down and talked to C 
I'm glad I didn't do it. Okay. So have you, did you, at any point, did you get to listen to, you know, the band at that point? You know, have you heard anything from that, from that time? Um, yeah. What, what'd you think? Uh, I don't know. You know, it was, I didn't, I, I really, I, I wasn't impressed, I guess. Maybe I had, my taste had changed and I had moved on. Yeah, I, I saw some of it on video. I didn't go to any of the shows and, uh, just, uh, eh. So different, different time, age. Yeah, yeah, different, okay. yeah, different time, different age. Okay, huh. okay. So I was over it. You know, kind of wrapping up things with Sam Hain. They do the shows in '99. Um, you know, Son of Sam. You know, even does this cool record, kind of in the wake of the Sam Hain reunion. Um, mm. uh, we fast forward to the last couple years. There's been these big, great, big Danzig legacy shows and things like that, and Sam Hain raps you know, 30 years, um, 84 to 2014. Um, and they say, okay, this is it. You know, at kind of bookending, you know, the, the Sam Hain kind of thing, you know, the, the, the history of the band, you're a significant, uh, you have a significant role in the history of the band, you know, from a kind of legacy standpoint, you know, what do you think, you know, what, what do you feel like, would you guys contribute, you know, if you contributed anything, you know, unique, you know, how, how do you feel about things at this point? Yeah, it was something, you know, something I did. It was cool. You know? But uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not, what am I going to say? I'm not, you know, I don't base everything I do on that. Right. That's something I did. That's, I mean, early on when I was in high school, like, one, of my, one of my favorite records is the Heartbreakers live at Max's, and that came out in '78. And the drummer on that, Ty Sticks, who were you know around New York '80s guy or late '70s, early '80s, you'd go down to St. Mark's Place, and he'd be leaning against the wall playing that on a boombox, like "Look at me." And even in high school, I was like, I don't want to be that guy. So it's I always take everything as, as like. Here's something I did, but this does not represent everything I'm about. That's an awesome way to put that. So, yeah, I did. You know, I did that stuff. It was, it was cool. It was you know, something to write about, I guess. But uh, part of history. You got to keep that point. Right. So, what's um, you know, kind of, you know, you know, you, I guess you would be at the midpoint of your life. You know what I mean? If there's, mm -hmm. you know, music wise. Do you have a dream? Is there anything you would want to like? Oh man, if I could go back and revisit that, I would. You know what? What's the what's the Pete Marshall kind of like bucket? You know, list as far as like, oh, I w I really wish I could play with whoever, or I could do this with you know whatever album. Like, I never got to be in Motorhead. <laughs> do you? Uh, where that's funny. My co-host and I were huge Motorhead fans. Do you? Um, the the tipping point with most Motorhead fans tends to be um, another perfect day. Um, yeah, where where are you at? What's what side of the fence are you on? Uh, I like the early stuff. Okay, the Eddie Clark uh, stuff. Up until yeah, yeah, that's Eddie's one of my favorite guitar players. Right. I like I like people with a, an identifiable sound, where I can hear him playing with other people and go like, I know who that is. Nice. Okay, Eddie's got that. Are you a Fastway fan yeah. at all? Eh, kind of, just because, it, you know, it was Fast Eddie. But uh, Whitey, the other guitar player in the Iggy's band, was 
pathways have. But a lot of that's like it's kind of generic. So we so, we, we wouldn't I, see we wouldn't see the trick or treat soundtrack in your record collection. No, <laughs> at least I don't think so. <laughs> nice, right? Those are, I haven't looked at I haven't looked at my records years. They're in a closet upstairs. So what do you what do you listen to now? You know, you, what what's what what still catches your attention? Um, nothing new. I've I've I you know I probably have you know things things I find exciting. No, hearing that the raw power box set was coming out, uh, you know stuff like that. Uh, I just I just I you know if there's like reissues of things and uh, you know I'm, I really don't go out and like look for other music. Or if you know, if people I know are doing something, maybe I listen to that. Like uh, you know, Four Way had a band uh, called Suicide King. Oh, I thought were pretty good. They're from New York. If you anybody ever gets a chance to listen to them, other things that people that were in the Stooges or the MC5 or any of those kind of bands, I I listen to. You know, Scott Morgan, the, the Helicopters, but they're not around anymore. Any, right. I don't think anyway. Uh. Yeah, if it's you know, if you like stuff like I do, then I'll listen to it. Right. Okay. I I just uh, I just got the Sea Hags record on CD, and uh, I remember how good that was. But um, so it's really not much. Okay. Nice. I think it's one of those things where you have kind of a you have a bookmark kind of epoch of time that you're all like, that's what I gravitate towards. And I think a lot of yeah. music fans, you tend to stay with that your whole life. Well, this feels like this feels like a good stopping point. Pete, thanks for being on the show, man. Sure. No, we'll be alright. It doesn't really matter if we live or die. What keeps us going is this fight.